Titus chapter 1. I would imagine that uh, quite a few of you have some experience with Pinewood Derby cars. If you were in Cub Scouts or you got a kid and boy in Cub Scouts that about December they hand you a block of wood, four nails and four little plastic wheels. And your job is to make a car that's going to go down a track. Now, um, when I was in Cub Scouts back in Montana when I was just a little kid, first time I did this, uh, my car I had a car, at least it looked like a car. It was unsuccessful in making it to the end of the track. Uh, it was devastating. You know what I'm saying? You're all, I was all totally excited to see if my car was going to win, and it didn't even make it to the end of the track. Um, so I had a few lessons to learn. But, you know, what happens is when you get this Pinewood Derby car, you, you, you create a plan of what you want your car to look like. And then, of course, you cut the wood off that's not fitting with your super cool-looking sports car that you're making, right? And, and then after you make the big saw cut, then you get out the old sandpaper and you start sanding. When I was... Uh, a little later, I had my youngest brother. He was in Cub Scouts, and I was helping him with his car when I was in high school. And I don't know what exactly happened, but it somehow I was able to break it in half. And uh, he starts crying. I'm like, don't cry and don't tell mom, okay? And, you know, this wouldn't be a big deal except the next day was the Pinewood Derby, right? And I've got the car in two pieces. But, you know, we were able to glue the thing back together. He actually got first place. It was a very cool deal. But, you know, our lives are like Pinewood Derby cars, We come to a point in our life where we recognize we are in absolute need of a savior. It's we see it in our relationships that are broken, sin in our life. God brings about a conviction that you are unholy and you cannot be in my presence. And at the same time, he draws us to the beauty and the wonder of Jesus Christ. And we turn from our sin and the waywardness of life. And we trust in Jesus Christ and his full provision for our sins. We experience love, forgiveness. We're clean. We have a desire to worship God. We have now a, a desire to actually be in his book, his word. We, we want to be with other Christians. We want to grow. We want to be involved in what God is doing. We start developing a king, kingdom mindset and perspective in life. And as we grow and mature, it's kind of like our lives are like that Pinewood Derby car. God begins to take and cut off some of the big chunks Parts of the residual aspect of our flesh that has always been an animosity toward God. He, he, he's got to cut that off. And some of these cuts go really deep. And then not only do we have major issues in our life that need to be addressed, but then the sandpaper comes out. Relationships, at home, work, church. God is in the process of sanctifying, setting apart his people that we might become more like his son And you see, God is so committed to us, our holiness. He loves us so much. Do you know that he is not going to leave you continually succumbing to sin? He's going to address those issues. And when we come to the book of Titus, in this opening chapter, we come to the qualities of a leader. But your leaders, the leaders of a church, are to exemplify what God is seeking to do in the lives of all of his people. Okay, it's not like, well, this is just for a few folks called elders and the rest of us. We can just kind of cruise around and do whatever we want. No, God is committed to growing you and maturing you that you might be fully complete in his son. You see, leaders are to be models of what Christ is doing in all of us. And so that's what we find in Titus chapter one. Paul has written this letter. 
to Titus. He says, I've got a specific mission for you. I want you, verse 5, for this reason I left you in Crete, that island in the Mediterranean, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. I want you to set in order. I want you to fashion that which is bent and out of place. I want you to straighten. And I want you to set in order in each one of these cities where there's a small little church. I want you to establish godly leaders called elders, overseers that are going to be able to give direction, care, leadership, discipleship, direction, vision for these churches. That's your job. And so what he talks about in verse six, we find we've actually spent two weeks on this. We've been looking that leadership in the church is matured through relationships at home. You want to find a godly man. God, God shapes his leaders a lot of the times through their home life. And so we've been looking at the fact that God matures his leadership for his church and the homes of, of these different people. Now, we're coming to a critical area now where he actually starts addressing character. And what you need to remember this is that the strength of a leader is determined by the development of his character. The strength of a leader is determined by the development of his character. When you look at Paul and you look at how he developed leaders and how he went about it, you're going to find it is the exact same model in which Jesus developed his leaders. And Jesus' plan was so simple that perhaps you missed it as you read through the Gospels. But you know what his plan is? First thing Jesus did is he he identified growing leaders. He didn't just kind of like draw a little line on the sand and say, I see that we got a lot of people here. The first 12 guys across this line, I'm just going to, you're going to be my guys. Okay, I'm just, uh-uh. Jesus, he, he called certain individual ones, like a tax collector. He just said, here, follow me. These boys that were fishing. He'd, they'd been around Jesus. He'd been observing them. He'd been with them. And he said, you guys, I want you to follow me. I'm going to make you fishers of men. They dropped everything, their nets. They followed him. In fact, the night before he actually named his 12, do you know he spent the whole night in prayer, praying? So the first thing he did is he identified growing leaders. And once he had his 12, he invested in them. He poured his heart into them. He taught them. He was with them. He corrected them. He rebuked them. He gave them vision. He cast the mission. He exemplified, this is what a leader does. This is how you live. He just lived out his life in front of them. He inspired them. He invested his life in their development. And then after having done that for about a couple years, then you know what he did? He entrusted the ministry to them. He, he, he gave his Holy Spirit. He invested his spirit that he had promised would come and enable them and empower them. He placed that spirit, his spirit in his life and he commissioned them. He entrusted them. I want you to go and I want you to make disciples throughout all the world, throughout all the nations. Go to the ends of the earth. And that's the simple plan. You identify, you invest, and you entrust. That's exactly what Paul did. He identified key leaders. He invested in them fully, and then he entrusted them with ministry. Now, when it comes to leadership development, let me just tell you something that you absolutely need to know. God is the one who develops leaders. God is the one who develops character. It's his spirit, his spirit working, bringing about conviction, direction, a yearning, a desire. God also uses his spirit working through his people that help shape and help direct. And he uses his word. That gives clear set direction. He actually, like in a text like we're looking at in Titus, he lays it out. This is what I'm trying to do in all of your lives. 
And this must be especially true in your leaders because character development is rooted in our relationship with Christ. And when it comes to developing leaders, God focuses on the whole life development. Now, this is quite different than the world. The world usually focuses on skills, but God focuses on the whole life. It's, he focuses on, first of all, like, like your head, what you know, things that you have knowledge and that you have wisdom. And, and, and it's not that you know a lot of facts, okay? It's not that you're just intelligent. You can memorize a lot of things. God wants you to be wise, that knowledge has infused your being, and, and it operates and shapes your direction, and you think biblically. And so he starts, he develops your head, but he doesn't just, it's just not head knowledge, God also wants you to have skills. And so it's like focusing on your hands, that you have the ability to do things. Skills in leading and loving and serving and discipling and mentoring and making good decisions. God tries and seeks to develop the skills of his people. And you could think of it like, his, like hands. So you have head, hands, but let me tell you the most critical of the three. Heart. Your character what you're really like. If you look at Jesus, the primary emphasis of his men and working with them was always addressing heart issues. And when they had a hardened heart, he actually called them on it and said, why do you have a hardened heart? You look at the Sermon on the Mount. It's all dealing with heart issues and investing your life in me. And he talks about humility and he talks about direction and compassion and what real love looks like. You know what he's doing? He's developing the heart of a leader. And let me just tell you what heart issues are character issues and character is critical. Character is critical. Churches crumble without leaders who have a Christ like character. If there's any question in your mind how essential character is, let me bring to mind a, perhaps an event that you're familiar with. There are some decisions made by a Captain Edward J. Smith. On a fateful night in 1912 that led to a major disaster. Captain Edwin, Edward Smith was actually the captain on board the Titanic when it sunk. And we're all very familiar with the story of the ship running into the iceberg. What, what is not commonly known is that Captain Edward Smith had a serious character flaw that had surfaced time again. In fact, that in less than a year before the event of the Titanic, he had actually been the captain of another ship, the HMS Hawk. And he, was, he actually had been involved in a very embarrassing collision with another ship. And then after that, he was able to take, he was, he was as a captain, he ran over a, a submerged wreck and actually caused a lot of damage to another ship. Well, you see, Captain Edward Smith kind of felt like he had to redeem himself. And the company put him in charge of the Titanic. The policy of the shipping company was this. With these passengers, as we're going to go across the Atlantic with this major, massive, unsinkable ship, it is to be followed and go with a moderate speed and maximum comfort. But not for Smith. Uh-uh, he had something to prove. He had a reputation to kind of get back in line. And so he treated the Titanic like a sports car. He set off on a crazy speed because he was going to set a new transatlantic speed record for a ship that size and he had a major character issue. In fact, there people on board, he would go around the tables and say, this ship is unsinkable. It could be broken in three different parts and all three, they'd be floating. And it was his character flaw, that unaddressed issue, 
that led to the demise and the sinking of the Titanic. Now, elders, leaders, probably not going to run into too many icebergs, right? But you're going to run into a lot of problems and trouble. Leaders have to be men and women of character. And that is especially true of the elders, the overseers of your church. You see, when it comes to leadership development, you got to start with the heart. Yeah, it's nice to have skills. Necessary. Got to have intelligence and smart and understanding. Wisdom. Absolutely. But it all gets started with the heart. That's what Jesus focused on. That's what Paul focused on. When Paul sends Titus to the island, I want you to appoint elders in every city. You know what he's focusing on? You find men of character. You help them develop. You help them grow. Now, what character qualities are these emerging leaders? What are they supposed to be developing and manifesting? Well, he says, look at this. Verse 7. For the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward. Above reproach means that there's just no loophole for criticism. There's no handle on his life. There's just not something that you can kind of point to like this guy's got some pretty uh, serious, unquestionable character. No, he is above reproach. And notice what he says as God's steward. This is really what elders are. They're managers of God's household. They take care of, they lead, they develop, they mature, they correct, they discipline, they guide, they cast vision of God's churches, his household. Now, the word steward is very, was very common. This brings the mind of, of servants that were in complete submission to a master. Now, stewards, they could either be slaves or they could actually be freedmen who had kind of become indentured servants. They had just aligned themselves with this a particular master. They were in charge of pretty much everything. The care of the family, to make sure they had food. If they were sick, they cared for them. They oversaw crops. They oversaw the finances. And you reported everything back to the master. That's what a steward does. It doesn't belong to you. You're just in charge of it for a time. But you're accountable to the headmaster. That's what elders are. They're under shepherds to Christ. They report to him. One day they will give an account. Every church leader is going to give an account of what did you do with the church that I entrusted to you? Did you care for them? Did you help them grow and mature? Did you just leave them wallowing around in immaturity and sin? Or did you actually address and help bring about godliness? Did you love them? Did you care for them? Well, that's what a steward is. Notice what he says. The overseer must be above reproach as God's steward. And what he's going to do in verse 7 is he's going to cast, cast a vision for what leadership looks like. Characteristics of authentic Christ-like leaders. And this is what he's seeking to cultivate in every believer. Now, in verse 7, he actually starts with all the negatives, and that's where we're going to be this week. Quality leaders, uh, he's going to address qualities that leaders need to address and avoid. Your elders, your church leaders, you cannot have this. And so he's going to lay it out here. The first one he says is they must not be self-willed. This refers to a person who is arrogant, Obstinate, stubborn, just kind of governed by his own sense of self-will. He's self-centered. He, he has to control the situation, can be uh, dogmatic, autocratic, and he's got this proud self-interest. And the person that is self-willed is not qualified to be a church leader because it is God and his agenda, not some person, not some man and what he wants. And so you can't have a guy who's a my way or no way kind of being. He's overbearing. He's overwhelming. You can't have that. And frankly, self-centeredness is just part of our DNA, isn't it? Okay, granted, 
some people have perfected the art more than others in self-centeredness. And do not raise your hand like I think I'm married to one of those people. Okay? But it's all part of us. But you see, when we come to Christ, you see, he comes and takes up residency in our life. We have a new Lord, a new master, a new God, and it's him, not us. And so the, the elder, the overseer, he's to be a person who is submitted to Christ. He's not a self-willed individual. And, you know, I, I mean, it's bad enough that it's part of the residual flesh nature that we have, even as Christians. But let me just tell you how this is fostered. Oftentimes it gets started when kids are really young. And parents, for whatever reason, maybe they have been absent. Maybe they've made some mistakes. Uh, maybe they don't want to face the wrath of their children. I don't want to let my little boy get upset or my little girl. And so you know what they do? They just appease them. They overindulge them. They'll just whatever they want. And you've got kids that learn how to be moody, brooding, throwing temper tantrums, kicking things, giving cold treatment, slamming doors. And you know what? Mom and dad are like, oh, I don't know what to do. I don't want to make them too mad. He's already mad. And you know what happens? These little boys and girls, they grow up. At least they get older. But those same tendencies, self-centeredness, self-willed, guess what? It just shows up in adult form. And it is ugly. And they might convince somebody to, to marry them. And you got a marriage of havoc. They must not be self-willed. God is seeking to address this issue. And, you know, we all face self-centeredness, right? Let me just tell you this. Occupation with self is overcome by being yielded to Christ. If you can wake up in the morning, so you go through your day and say, Lord, I am yours. It has the ability to start overcoming these selfish tendencies. Now, your elders, your leaders, they cannot be, like he says here, they cannot be self-willed. Second is like the first cousin. He says, not only they're not to be not self-willed, they're not to be quick-tempered. Not easily made angry or prone to anger. I mean, we live in an age of kind of like Rambo retaliation, right? I mean, if someone does something to you, well, you better get back to them right away. And, and you've got to get things even, if not get the upper hand, right? And so you just, that's how it is. I, I remember I was in L.A. I was riding with my friend Keith and we're in L.A. traffic. And it's just a zoo down there. And, and I was just kind of looking at some of the cars and he said, don't do that. Don't look at the eyes of the other cars. I'm like, really? He says, don't. That's how people get shot. Okay? I'm like, okay. That's right in front of me. You know what? That's how it is. This idea of being quick-tempered. It's like people have like a 10-second fuse and then bam, they just explode. And they're in your face and they just blow up like, a, like fireworks. Hey, this is all part of the flesh. This is sin. This needs to be addressed. And let me tell you where this idea of being quick-tempered comes from. It, what, what it's sourced in is the fact that you're, there's deep insecurities. There's wrong, issue, wrong images of who you really are. And so what happens is you feel a little bit offended. Someone doesn't give you the respect that you think that you, should, you deserve. And so what happens is you've got some real issues, and all of a sudden you just start blowing up on people. Now, now let's talk about anger. We all have anger. I, right now, everybody's doing really good. I don't see any angry people, but I know, right? you know, I know that every once in a while, anger creeps up, right? Yeah. You know, it's interesting what the Bible has to say about anger. It doesn't say never be angry. In fact, Ephesians 4.26 says this, be angry and yet do not sin. 
and do not let the sun go down on your anger. He acknowledges that there's going to be things that are going to upset us. We have it built in that things are going to upset us. And there's a lot of upsetting things and people in our lives. He says, be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let your anger carry over to sin. And he actually tells you how you can prevent that by not letting the sun go down on your anger. That means you need to deal with these issues quickly in a timely manner, because if you fail to get what you want or someone doesn't show you the kind of respect that you want or something happens where you're a little bit a little bit um, disturbed with someone, you know what happens if you allow that anger to continue to fester and grow and develop. You know what the next verse says in Ephesians chapter four, verse 27? It says, and do not give the devil an opportunity. You see, Satan uses anger to create wedges between people. He creates divisions. I mean, there's marriages that go into divorce. There are relationships with kids and family members, schools, teams, churches. They're, you know what they're caused by? Caused by division. I, had a, I don't know if the guy's a Christian or he's a new Christian, but I'm, I'm talking with him a lot. He wanted to know why there were so many churches. I had to tell him the bad news because of all the divisions about Christians who can't get along. And so this whole idea of being quick-tempered, why, it's prevalent. And unaddressed anger issues in your life, this is serious, are going to reap serious consequences in your life and potentially in the life of a church. I mean, just think about anger. Anger is a major cause of depression. Medical, uh, modern medicine has documented proof that things like uh, headaches, backaches, uh, some allergic disorders, ulcers, high blood pressure, heart attacks, all can now be tied to anger. When you allow anger just to continue to flourish, it becomes a, doma- a, a dominating theme in your life. It's setting you up for all sorts of trouble, not only personally, but in your involvements with other people. It's going to start distorting and diminishing the work of God in your life until it's addressed. There's a a doctor that I think many of you are familiar with. His name is Dr. Ben Carson. Um, He is known throughout the world. He has one of the premier brain surgeons. He's the guy that's involved in all these really intricate uh, Siamese twins that are joined at the head. I mean, this guy, he's an amazingly gifted surgeon. And, and God has used him in a lot of different ways. And he's refining techniques for these very complicated surgeries. What is not commonly known about Dr. Ben Carson is some events of his childhood. And last year, he, uh, he wrote a book, a book called Take the Risk. And he, in it, he wrote that his career was over before it, it was almost over even before it started. He accounted an event uh, that happened when he was 14 years old. He was over at his friend Bob's house, and they're apparently listening to the radio. Um, uh, ben was apparently liking the particular songs on. Bob didn't really care for it. Bob's house, Bob's radio, Bob. He turned the station to another song. Ben's like, ah. turned the station back. Bob's like, yep, that song. Turned that back to the, another station. Well, something happened in Ben. It's just that that overwhelming rage that he had just had all these many different times before. And he said he grabbed a pocket knife that he always carried in his pocket within with one motion. He grabbed it, opened it. He pulled that blade out and he jammed it into his friend's gut. Fortunately, his friend Bob was wearing a large metal belt buckle 
But the force was so strong that when that knife hit that belt buckle, that blade busted off. And Bob looked at that broken knife, and he looked at Ben. Ben just goes, uh, 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 I'm, I'm sorry. He drops the knife, and Ben goes running home. He goes home. No one's home. He runs in. He goes to the bathroom. He shuts the door. He locks it, and he falls on the floor. And he, in the book, he recounts what happened here. He said, he said, I burst into the empty house. I locked myself into the bathroom, sank to the floor, miserable and frightened. I could no longer deny that I had a severe anger problem and that I'd never achieved my dream of being a doctor with an uncontrollable temper. I admitted to myself there was no way I could control it myself. And this is what he prayed. Lord, please, you've got to help me. Take this temper away. You promise that if I ask anything in faith, you'll do it. I believe you can change me. After he utters his prayer, he, he slips out. He grabs a Bible back to the bathroom, locks it back on the floor. And he opens up the book and he opens to Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 32. And this is what he read. He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty. And he who rules a spirit than he who captures a city. And he writes, it convicted me, but also gave me hope. I felt God telling me that although he knew everything about me, he still loved me. And that because he made me, he was the only one who could change me. And that he would. And gradually I stopped crying. My hands quit shaking. I was filled with the assurance that God had answered my prayer. Uncontrolled anger has never again been a threat to me or those around me. God has provided and will provide whatever strength I need to control my anger. When it comes to leaders, they cannot be quick-tempered. You know, your anger is sin when you're emotionally or you're physically hurting people. It is sin when it persists into bitterness. It's a sin when it becomes a pattern in your life. It is a sin when you become vengeful. This has got to be addressed. Anger is contorting your soul if it's a theme in your life. If you've got someone that's wronged you, and who doesn't? I mean, think of it. How many of you have never been really wronged by someone? We all have. But do you know what God says? Romans chapter 12, verse 17 says, Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. He says, he says in another verse, in verse 19, chapter 12, he says, You know what? Never take your own revenge, my beloved. But leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, says the Lord, and I will repay. What we ought to do is these issues that people really wronged us and they're eating us. It's not bothering the other folks, really. It's really eating you. We got to give it to God. You know, what do you do when when anger's knocking at your door? You know, those times and maybe it's even a daily occurrence for you. We got to pray. We need to talk to God. There's something that happens when we commune with God, even in the midst of our darkness, disappointment, hurt in our soul. We pray. And the other thing we need is perspective. We need to be able to get a sense of what's really happening. Perspective happens when we put some time. Time becomes your friend when you're angry. Never lash out. Don't speak when you're angry. But time becomes our friend, and, and really even God can use even other people to help us gain perspective on issues that we might be facing. Something you might want to try is if, if you find that I'm angry about a lot of different things, start rating things on a scale of 1 to 10. 
One being like, I'm probably not going to remember this tomorrow. And 10 being, I've got a nuclear war going on in my hometown. Okay? And start rating those things that are so upsetting to you. And you're going to find that most of the stuff is really a 2 to 3. But you're treating it like a 9 or a 10. Your elders, your leaders, what God is seeking to do in all of us, he doesn't want us quick-tempered. And yet all of us have a short fuse. But God can develop patience, long-suffering, gentleness, self-control in our life. And he does so through his spirit. Let me give you a third characteristic he lists right here. Your overseer, he cannot be self-willed. He cannot be quick-tempered. All right. He is not addicted to wine. He is not under the bondage or the influence of alcohol. And, and this really kind of indicts any substance that can kind of take control of your mind and your behavior. You want someone who is not in a place where he is just lacking control. And this issue of drinking wine, why this is a major issue in Crete. They had a goddess Dionysus and she was worshipped by getting drunk. Okay. And so there is a big difference between the church of the living God and cult followers of Dionysus. And so he said, your leaders, they cannot be addicted to wine. Now, it doesn't say that he should not, the elder should not partake of wine, but what it says is that he is not addicted to wine. Now, the wine most commonly drunk in Paul's day in the Roman Empire, it was like you have one part wine, it was mixed up with like to eight to ten parts water, okay? And this is especially true in the summer. I mean, you're, you're hot, there's no air conditioning, you're sweating all the time, and so you had to drink a lot of water. And so they would use alcohol, and it had a purifying effect because most of the water was bad, so they had mixed it with a little bit of wine, and it had a purifying effect on that water. And so that's, that's what they drank. Now, so it was, you know, it was considered barbaric to drink strong wine. The wine that would you see in today's markets would be, if you drank that, that would be considered barbaric. No one in biblical times drank wine like that. Now, he doesn't say that the elders shouldn't partake of wine. He just says they shouldn't be addicted to wine. In fact, Paul says to a, another one of his protégés, Timothy, he says, Timothy, I want you to take wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. So he actually tells them, tells Timothy, listen, Wine can have a medicinal effect. And even though as obviously Timothy's practice, like, listen, as a leader, I'm not drinking any of it. Paul said there's even benefit, health benefit for you to do so. But what the Bible clearly teaches is against is drunkenness. Drunkenness, debauchery, this is, these are characteristics of the unsaved. Okay? This is a life that is not lived in, in glorifying God, but a life that is trying to find hope, meaning, survival through alcohol and its effect on a person's life. Paul says in Ephesians 5.18, listen, do not get drunk with wine for that is, anybody know? Dissipation, utter waste, but rather be filled with the Spirit. Be controlled, yielded, under the control of God's Spirit. Now, let's just talk a little bit about drinking alcohol. If you're under 21, it's illegal. Okay? Romans 13, you were to, and I were to be subject to the government. And the laws that are before us, it is illegal. I don't care who's doing it. Romans 13 says it's illegal and we need to submit to the governing authorities that are placed over us. But if you keep reading in the book of Romans, come to chapter 14. And in chapter 14, he lays out a case that says if if drinking is causing someone to stumble, then you, you need to knock it off. You need to stop. You need to be at least very careful that you do not cause anyone to stumble. In fact, he says, Romans 14, 13, let us, therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in another's, in a brother's way. 
And so he says in Romans 14, 21, it is good not to eat meat or drink wine or anything by which your brother stumbles. The idea of stumbling is that you really don't care what happens to another person. And that that might cause them to go into to, to either sin or have this state of kind of flux and chaos going on in their mind. Like, hey, why are you the strong, mature Christian doing that? And I thought that was associated with that kind of behavior, which I was just rescued from. And so if you're you know, like. I don't really care about that person. You're wrong. As believers, we are very concerned about the spiritual development of everyone, especially the younger believer, the believer that's not as mature. And so, you know what you need to do? You need to think very carefully, biblically and prayerfully about where your convictions lie in your use or non-use of alcohol. Uh, when you're considering this, I want you just to think about a few things. I want you to think about the devastation that is caused by alcohol. Look at the number of families that have been destroyed. A lot of you know exactly what I'm talking about. I have seen this. This is terrible. But then you look at uh, people that have been crippled because of alcohol-related issues and injuries. Um, babies. Permanently disadvantaged by fetal alcohol syndrome. Tragedy. Look at the livers and the minds that are destroyed by alcohol. If you have any question like, does this really hurt me? You need to go and do a little research on Mickey Mantle. And listen to what he talked about at the end of his life. The great regrets he did to himself. Think about um, the fact that alcohol leads to a lot of death. Not only to self, but to others. There's a policy research group called the Drug Strategies. They produced a report on alcohol in America, and they call it America's most, persua- uh, America's most pervasive drug problem. Did you know that alcohol-related deaths outnumber drug-related deaths? Ready? Four to one. Four to one. So it's more readily accessible. It's dangerous, friends. I mean, it's it's a it's a factor in more than half of the domestic violence and sexual assaults that take place in our country. It creates it creates havoc in a society when people give themselves over to alcohol. And so what you need to do, friends, you need to very prayerfully, carefully and biblically think through this issue to develop your convictions. And once you do, once you come to a place you land, you also want to be careful that you don't become everybody else's judge. You think it through. What you want to do, you just want to let the light of Jesus Christ shine. But for your leaders, your elders, they cannot be addicted to wine. By the way, if, this, if you find yourself with an alcohol issue, come. There are people that can help you. And you don't have to live like this. And you don't have to affect everybody like you are. Then he says there's another characteristic. Your leader, he must not be, look at verse 7. Not pugnacious, not a word we use every every all the time, every day. This is a, refers to a guy or in person individual. He uh, he's prone to violence. He resorts to physical violence. He he gives blows. He's warlike. He's belligerent. Got a contentious nature. He's he's kind of a combative person. He's the bully. Remember the bully like in junior high and high school. Well, the pugnacious person. That's how he kind of goes through life. And your leaders cannot be. God isn't creating us to be evil warmongers, fight at a drop of a hat kind of person. And by the way, 
I mean, it's, it's startling that this is in there, but apparently this is how disputes were handled. OK, we're not getting along. Let's take it outside. Right. OK. And we're going to deal with that. And whether they deal with their fists or sticks or stones or whatever they're doing. Well, Paul says none of that. You guys, especially your leaders, you want to cultivate leadership that is not resulting in blows. And it's not just physical blows, but it's verbal. You know, your words can perhaps leave more damaging effect than your fist. And so he says, no, you've got to have individuals who are not fighters. You've heard of a pugilist, haven't you? That's the word right before pugnacious in the dictionary. Pugilist is a boxer, is a fighter. And so you want a guy who's not running around, belligerent, having his own ways and what? You don't agree with me? Oh, come on, I'm going to take you. Uh -uh. No, none of that. We need shepherds who've got integrity and that gentleness about him. Charles Spurgeon, he told his pastor college students this, quote, don't go around the world with your fist doubled up for fighting, carrying a theological revolver in the leg of your trousers. Just like only Spurgeon could say that. But you let me tell you this. There are folks that pride themselves in their theology. And they're just they just run around looking for fights. And I can just tell you from experience, they create major havoc and harm in the church. And they're running around, oh, I've got the right theology. And they're just, they're just kind of looking for someone. And they just seize upon that person and they attack. Okay? And they just, they just work these people over. And, and they create problems, major problems. I've seen this. I've had to deal with some of these issues. No, no. You don't want to be pugnacious. You don't want to be envying people who resort to violence. You want to have leaders who are not fighters, but are true leaders in helping people grow, develop, and mature. Now, if you've really been wounded by a Christian leader, and some of you have, I've, I've met with different people who they had a pastor or some elder, and he just ramrodded things over them and he hurt them. If you've, if you've had that issue, um, there's a book I want to recommend. It's, it's small, it's short, but it's powerful. It's called A Tale of Three Kings, A Tale of Three Kings by Gene Edwards. And in it, he addresses how, why does, how does God even use these King Saul's in our life that are throwing spears at us? And he comes to some pretty interesting conclusions that I think you might find helpful. If you need the short version, I'll give you the one-minute synopsis in the foyer in a couple minutes. Let me give you another. The final quality he lists here is, you know what? Your elders, they cannot be fond of sordid game. That word sordid means greedy. This has got a, an individual who does not seek to just get money by unquestionable or dishonorable means. He's not fond of dishonest gain. This is a guy who lives above reproach. Now, money is not the issue. And even making a lot of money is not the issue. It's the love of money and what it does for you, does to you. That's what's being addressed here. Mature Christians do not love money. Okay. Paul uh, is, uh, wrote about this in first Timothy chapter one, verse six and verse, uh, chapter six, verse nine. He says, but those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires, which plunge men into ruin and destruction. If all you want is money. And by the way, this affects people that have a lot of it, but it perhaps even affects people that don't have very much of it even more. They're just like, think about it. Oh, I just I just want it. I just want it. And so what happens is they start justifying. They can justify expense accounts. and like, well, they kind of owe it to me this because I did this. And they start all sorts of rationalization takes place in the person's mind. And he says in 1 Timothy 6.10, you know what? The love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. Not all evil, but all sorts of evil. And some by longing for it have pierced themselves, have longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with griefs 
and, and they've hurt themselves and they've hurt others. And so he says, you know what, for your leader, they must not be fond of sordid gain. You've got to have leaders who are not living in the gray area. I remember uh, having one guy, it's not in this church, but that was his favorite area to live in, the gray area. Nothing was black or white. It was just, it's the gray area. And he felt very comfortable. As Christian leaders, we're not feeling overly comfortable living all of our life in the gray area. You're not involved in shady deals. You're not involved in dishonorable gain. You're not gambling. You're not cutting corners at another person's expense. You know what you're doing, though? When you're, you've got to remember, who gave you the money that you have anyway? God did. Did you think that, that you just, that's your money? No, you're a steward. You're a steward. You, you, when you check out of here, you don't take any of it with you. You see, God's just entrusted you with a certain amount of money. And, and some of you, he's entrusted you with a lot of money. You're a manager. You're accountable to what you do. When you, when you see yourself as a steward of God's money, it starts freeing you up from feeling like, it's mine, mine, mine. I need more, more, more. In fact, you feel like there's a freedom of just to be generous, to give. You recognize that you're here to be a conduit of blessing. You're merely a manager or a steward of funds that God has entrusted to your care. But when you love money, when you're fond of sordid gain, you've got some serious issues. And our country has experienced this firsthand. You look at Enron and all the chaos that was created there. Or how about Bernie? Bernie Madoff, huh? What was going on there? Oh, he didn't have enough income? No. It's, it's, he is fond of sordid gain. And so those are some bigwigs. But how about, just the, how about the little high school, high school secretary in West? That was actually just, she was handed her sentence this week. That gal, young gal, working in West High School, she was able to siphon off $26,000 last year out of the kids' activity funds. What was going on there? She's fond of sordid, she's greedy gain. Can't be true to us, especially true of our elders. You cannot have these qualities. You know, why is it so important that leaders address and avoid these sinful patterns? Let me just... Quickly, just name these off for you. The glory of God. God's glory is our life. And when these characteristics of verse 7 are true of us, it gives a very distorted view of just the greatness and the wonder and the beauty of God. Your fellowship with Christ is affected when these issues aren't addressed or avoided. Your growth in godliness. Your relationships with people close to you. Your ability to lead and minister to other people is completely curtailed if these characteristics are being manifested in your life. Because as a leader, you've got to meet pressing needs. You've got to set the example. You've got to be able to involve yourself in other li- others' lives. And if you have these traits, that's not going to be a possibility. And if you do involve yourself in others' lives, you're going to hurt them. And these are God's people. And Titus, you find leaders who are cultivating characteristics and are, that are uh, godly and that are addressing these traits, like I've spelled out in verse 7. You know, if you do not address these things, it's going to diminish or destroy the work of God that he's seeking to accomplish in your life. And you know what happens? It's kind of like this. You know, when you break your leg, it doesn't work quite right. Do you notice that? And you can't function very well. What needs to take place is it needs to be set. If we've been addressing some issues that these are issues for you, maybe there's one that's like, how in the world did that happen? I show up here today, he's talking about this, and it is a major issue in your life, a major sin issue. What do you do? 
How can we overcome these sinful patterns? Well, the first thing you have to do is you've got to call it for what it is. Call it sin. Alcoholics, people with anger issues, they, they just they have a tendency of always to avoiding. And it's quickly the blame game. It's someone else. They cause all these problems. And uh-uh-uh-uh. You want help? You've got to call a spade a spade. You've got to call it what it is. It's sin. You've got to identify the problem. Do not rationalize it. Second, you have to confess it. And you start communicating with Christ. Now, if you're here today and you do not know Christ, verse 7 might be like, did he read my journal or something? How did he get all that stuff? What God is doing is he is convicting you of your sin And he wants you to trust and turn to the Savior so that you can experience forgiveness. But if you're a Christian and some of these characteristics are true of you, do you know what we need to do? We run to the Savior. You see, God loves us with an eternal love. We are never separated from him. But he loves us so much, he's not going to leave us in these despicable states. He's going to address it. He's going to use his word, his spirit, his his saints, and he's going to address these issues so that you and I, we will be holy. And so we go to him and receive his truth, truth of his word, and we receive grace. We think of Christ and his cross. We think of his strength. We call out like Ben Carson, Lord, help me. And he will. He will. We repent. We renew our minds with truth and we redirect our steps. We take steps going in the right direction. And let me also tell you this. We connect with others. Some of the issues that we're talking about here, you need other people, people with some pretty serious skills that can help you. But do you want it? And until you're saying, I need help, you're probably going to continue on the same trajectory that you are. But God is announcing to each of us, I don't want to leave you there. I want you to experience holiness. You know what? The strength of a leader, it's determined by the development of his or her character. And that's what God is seeking to develop in all of us. That we are men and women of integrity, of heart, of character. And after all, the people that grow and mature like this, who have character like has been described here in verse 7, who have addressed these issues and are avoiding them, these are the ones that emerge as leaders in the church. Let's pray. Lord, I want to thank you for your word. It's absolute clarity how you do not mince words. You address the issues as they are. And Father, I pray for the individuals who perhaps have come here today who do not know the Savior. They're here. They've heard your truth. Lord, would you allow them, would you draw them to yourself? Would they turn from their sin and trust your Son as their sole Savior in life? Renew them. Make them new creatures in your Son. And Father, I pray for the Christians that are here. And perhaps verse 7 has hit upon some issues that, that do need to be addressed, that you are addressing at this present time. Lord, give us grace. Help us to realize the immense hope we have in your Son. Help us to understand the resources we have in your Holy Spirit, how you are committed to our growth and development, for you want a people of praise who worship you with holy hands, holy lips, and holy lives. So, Lord, do your purifying work in our hearts. Fill us with your Spirit and your joy. All for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.